0: When you plunk a 100 million dollar wind farm down on 98,000 acres of varying terrain, you kind of want to know a few things. You want to know that you're optimizing the location of your multi-million dollar turbines. You want to know that the turbines you source can handle the gustiest gust of wind they will ever encounter without shattering dramatically in a viral video. And you want to test potential use cases and changes in software which is cheap and changeable rather than in hardware which is expensive and hard to edit. Which is why Siemens Gamesa, the global renewable energy company, is working with NVIDIA to generate AI-powered digital twins of its turbines. In this Tech First, I chat with Dion Harris, who's a lead product manager of Accelerated Computing at NVIDIA, and Greg Oxley from Siemens Gamesa about digital twins, wind farms, and speeding up a transition to a renewable energy future via AI you're creating digital twins of wind farms
1: why is that when we look at operational wind farms there's obviously a lot of physics at play there Um, so we have uh, wind farms that we've sold and and have been put in various positions and now we have to service them and what we uh, want to do in moving into the digital twin space is to be able to have uh, an accurate digital model of the entire wind farm where we can play out scenarios Um, so this could be realizations where we have um, you know incoming weather events and we want to see how to optimally uh, operate that wind farm as as we move through uh, these type of events we could be testing new control strategies or something that you know we want to look moving to the future and we want to see how the wind farm will perform uh, under those new you know control paradigms Um, so for us it's all about first of all having uh you know these accurate models that we can in real time run um, you know realizations of what could be occurring at the wind farm and having uh, the type of platform where we can immerse ourselves into that data because it's fair enough to say that you have uh, this digital model or this digital model but when it all comes together and how do you immerse yourself and do decision making based on the results of, of of what's coming out of that digital twin um, that that's an important aspect and it's a, a big data problem. Uh, it's, a, a high technology problem to be able to, to wrap your head around those results. So it's, uh, for us, uh, equally important to having the models and the individual models that make up the digital twin is, uh, to be able to immerse ourselves into those models and those results and have actionable information that we can, you know, proceed with.
0: Greg, is it also about where you might want to place uh, the individual windmills in a wind farm, where they get optimal access to wind?
1: Right. So when we think of uh, digital twins, we can think of the initial initialization of that digital twin as the siting activities that we do in placing those wind farms. And a lot of those models that we start with our initial guess with, uh, and then we release them into an operational type digital twin model, um they need to be corrected and informed as as data is coming in and and we can tune those models for those like site-specific scenarios that we're seeing and take that information during you know the digital twin operation and the plant operation and take the learnings there and the tuning we're doing and feeding it back to the model development that we have a priori to the wind farm going into the operation so in the design phase so it's all a connected loop um, of uh, and everything comes together. We got to get that data engineering and all that information coming back and forth.
0: Dion, let's bring you in here. Is this something that you're doing with other customers as well? Are you trying to create digital twins of different types of technologies, installs, machinery, to sure. understand how it works?
2: Absolutely. And so what's been really interesting is to see all the different use cases, right? So everything from medical... Um, use cases like creating a digital twin of of a blood vessel. Literally understanding if you flow and if you model different blood flows, how will that result in helping avoid hemorrhaging or how will that avoid um, potential ruptures of blood vessels, for example. Also, obviously in addition to wind farms, there's also modeling the globe itself. You know, we've had a lot of interesting insights that we've been able to glean from leveraging similar approaches to building digital twins of, of the climate to understand how different scenarios will play out. And so, you know, the whole notion of digital twins as it relates to scientific and industrial use cases is is truly exploding. It's really interesting to see how it's being applied.
0: Super interesting. Greg, talk about the speed here of modeling. You've got some massive speed up with using the new technology and the AI that
1: you're working on.
0: What's the speed up?
1: Well, for instance, uh, I, I can say one use case where we've worked with NVIDIA to develop GPU accelerated wake modeling. Um, so in this case, uh, when when you have a parcel of land and you need to place wind turbines around that land, there's a lot of things that you have to take into consideration. Um, so you can think of the simplest case, you just have flat terrain with no barriers and, and this becomes a very simple case. You're just worried about the wakes of the wind turbine, i.e. how is each the wake from each turbine is gonna interact with each other. But on top of that, we also have a lot of other things to take care of, and particularly on the onshore space, where you've seen wind turbines placed along turbine cliffs, you've seen, you know, wind turbines placed in and around forests, and uh, so what we have to do is first of all we have to model the flow all around the wind park, and we do this at the beginning, and then on top of that, we overlay the layouts and their wake interactions on top of that, um, on top of that, you know, prediction. Um, now, in the optimization loop, we don't necessarily run that flow model again. We have this background flow model of how the wind is going to behave as it's going around mountains and in valleys, and how that's going to, you know, be distributed across the park. And now, when it comes to doing the layout optimization, we have to change the turbine positions, and every time we move a turbine, we have to recalculate the wake model, <laughs> right? And now you can imagine our solution space is huge. We have, you know, twenty kilometer by twenty kilometer parks. Let's say for, uh, you know, in, in the biggest cases. And uh, so we're talking about thousands and thousands of iterations. So in our traditional CPU driven wake modeling, we get into a limit where we we, we just have a bottleneck where we can not explore the solution spaces as effectively as we want to. Now with the GPU accelerated wake model, where we're seeing anywhere from, from 10 to 500 times speed ups, I, I, I'm not sure if I have those numbers exactly correct, but they're, uh, you know, massive speed ups. What this does is allow us to explore larger spaces of design, many more potential layouts that we can look at and ultimately come to the most optimal solution, according to our predictions.
0: It's super interesting, actually, because I live in a mountainous area. I actually live on a mountain Mm. and I love going for walks and hikes and stuff like that. And I've always marveled in my particular area where it seems like the wind is in my face every step of my walk. It's like it's swirling around. It's coming back. And I'm like, how is this possible? Uh, (laughs) Does that sound insane to you or does that sound like you've heard
1: that before? That sounds like mountain wind to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Certainly. It's something that we deal with quite a lot. If you were to take, um, you know, uh, let's say an iso surface across that farm of how the wind direction is changing and how the wind is accelerating or recirculating, we get these recirculation bubbles as, you know, wind goes over a mountain and you get these very turbulent flow structures going behind it. Um, You know, it it can be so variable. And, And like you said, walking around mountainous terrain, going one way, the wind can be, you know, to your face and it's at your back. You turn around, it's in your face again, right? So it's a, it's a complex problem, and, and we know from modeling wind, from modeling weather, that uh, you know you just have to look at your forecasts. How how often are your forecasts accurate? You know, I'm sure yeah. you, may, you may have some complaints on that front. Uh, it's very <laughs> difficult, and that's not uh, you know to put down weather modeling or anything. It's a, it's a very difficult problem to solve, and uh, you know this type of digital twin work that you're talking about in terms of modeling climate, for instance, or, or getting a better understanding of, of larger scale processes than we're looking at in wind farm design. You know, it really takes that type of feedback between model and, and, and how it's performing compared to, you know, what it's observing and that kind of tuning and feedback and everything that, that really has a chance to drive down those errors. Right.
0: Well, that's really interesting. And Dion, love to hear from you on this because Greg yeah. mentioned weather. Um, Yeah. And it's notoriously complex, as you mentioned, (laughs) um, and notoriously difficult. But you've got something that you say, hey, makes predicting extreme weather events 45,000 times faster. Talk about that.
2: Sure, sure. Well, first, before I I discuss that, I want to hit on a point that that Greg mentioned, but I want to just drive home, which is sort of what's delivering the speed up. Today it's really driven by AI, right? leveraging different neural network approach, whether it's a physics informed based approach or a data-driven-based approach, that's what gives you sort of this real-time nature of being able to iterate and change these parameters real-time, right? Because otherwise, you would have to go and re-simulate this in a first principles-based model using CPUs or GPUs. that, That will take a long time. And so because you're able to leverage AI, and in this case, we use a platform that we call Modulus that allows us to build models based on physics as well as data-driven models, and of course you can use your simulation data to train and inform the model, as well as inform data. So it's taking all these different inputs to come up with a fairly accurate real-time model. So then if I take that, and like I said, looking at the wind farm, that's a very complex system, right? When you talk about just the dimensions of that, and I'm not sure, I'm getting some feedback, I don't know if that's you or me, but we'll, we'll keep going. Um, it's getting louder here. Okay. that's better. So- There we go. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so like I said, as we take, you know, the example of the wind farm, very complex system. Now, if you expand that by 1000 times 10,000 times, and you're modeling the Earth's climate, and when you understand all this sort of interdependencies and when we say complex system what we're really describing is something over here and my hand is out and far to the left here out of frame affects something over here which is again completely out of frame but you get the idea is that is how do you model those interdependencies and so what we've done is we've leveraged um you know our understanding of physics and so there's a there's uh, very popular physics equations around you know partial differential equations which help you model that and, and the change across complex systems and then we've also built in you know the capability to use what are called Fourier neural operators and so this is again a specific type of neural network that can use some physics to inform understanding of complex systems to then accelerate that and still deliver the accuracy so now that was sort of a, a wind up to kind of describe what we're doing um, on the climate side. So we announced something called ForecastNet, and this is something that's really exciting. And, you know, the thing about it, it's not just an NVIDIA. You know, we don't like to sort of make it sound like we're doing these things in a vacuum. You know, we've worked with researchers at Berkeley Labs, Caltech, Purdue, Michigan, and Rice University to develop this, this network. And so what's really exciting about it is we've been able to simulate the climate and so whenever you're looking at climate simulation what's really important is resolution right and the reason why resolution is important because it gives you the amount of detail and accuracy by which you can build that forecast right so when you're talking about climate change or climate weather in general and you say okay the earth's climate went up by an extra two degrees that's on a massive scale but what you really want to know is how is that going to affect you know, wildfires in California, right? Or how is that gonna affect the flooding that's happening, you know, in, in Sri Lanka, right? So so it's about getting more specificity and granularity, the more more um, resolution you can sort of impute in the model. So what we were able to do with ForecastNet, compared to sort of the, you know, state-of-the-art um, first principles-based simulations, we were able to improve the overall um, sort of performance per, you uh, I'll, I'll call it node is the best way to describe it. so we were only using twenty two um, you know GPU accelerated nodes and we were able to deliver you know the performance of roughly about ninety eight thousand um i'm sorry nine hundred and eighty four thousand um node seconds on a specific system that's out of out of uh, out of EMEA. um it's based on a on a platform called ifs and so the reason why that's that's interesting is when you think about modeling climate, because the systems are so complex, um, you're also going to have significant load, whether you're looking at the actual carbon footprint or the energy that it takes to simulate those. And so it's really about how can you simulate you know, these massively complex environments, but in a very efficient way possible. Because if money with no object, if power was no object, you can just throw CPUs at it all day and you can get there. But because we're trying to do it in an intelligent way, you know, AI is giving us some tools to model these very complex systems in a very efficient way, both in terms of time and energy efficiency. So, so it's really about how do you harness the power of AI to then, you know, deliver the accuracy that you would have, have from your standard first principles-based models to then give you that that speed up in performance and overall efficiency. So long-winded answer, but hopefully <laughs> that, that connects the dots between, like I said, how we get from sort of wind farms, based simulations to AI, to then looking at how that applies to the globe. That connected a lot of dots, but I'm still stuck on these very popular physics
0: equations, you know, (laughs) that were never picked last at the ballpark or never attended prom (laughs) alone or something like that. But, you know, I also want to know, like, what did you do? Did you, uh, were you running these models on your computer and then stopped? Because you had all this wind noise and all of a sudden stopped. What did you do to get
2: better audio all of a sudden? Um, It's back. I didn't do anything, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, technology is still full of gremlins it's okay is, no yeah, worries.
2: didn't do anything but it stopped and now it's it's back and now it's gone okay. again uh,
0: well let's turn to greg here yeah and greg I want to bring you back in um what is the real world impact of what you've been doing here obviously you're using it to plan uh, to put the wind farms in place. Uh, clearly you're also using it to estimate what could happen maybe at different storms with wind speed, that sort of thing. We've seen the video of windmills tearing themselves apart, right? The, those, those massive, uh, wings just, just flying apart. What are you getting out of Are you getting increased safety or getting increased income, better, better power generation?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, all of the above <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, so, um i like uh what what dion mentioned there in that uh, the the climate scales are are of course very important but but all the scales are so intrinsically linked so if you, we have climate scales we have mesoscales which is like the the mesoscale weather modeling type side of things and then we have the the, uh, the micro scale, which is a wind farm scale, we call it micro scale in, in, in wind energy, but it's really quite large uh, compared to what you might consider a, a micro scale in your normal life. Um, but uh, what this allows us to do is, um, you know, really get rid of the unknown. I remember, uh, you know, uh, General Chuck Yeager, uh, a famous test pilot who who broke the sound barrier uh, in the U.S. First, uh, yeah the first one he he had a uh, you know he was a test pilot in in california and uh they you know they had a lot of deaths, and they always feared they called it the unknown and uh, i think the unknown is what uh, we're always trying to mitigate you know um what we don't know and, and and put in the appropriate buffers to take care of that but you know that that puts us in a in a non ideal situation right we would rather clear that out and understand as best as possible the unknowns and and get to the true optimization instead of just adding buffers on top of everything to get to a true understanding of how your wind turbine is performing in all expected situations and be able to react when you know extreme situations are coming in and be able to react in a way that that's productive and i don't mean just in producing energy i mean maybe shutting down your turbines and not producing energy but but doing that when it's necessary and and making the correct decisions um, based on models that you trust and are proven um, to get to the the optimal solution, whether it's in operations, whether it's in initially siting the turbines, you know, th- that's the name of the game.
2: Yeah, one, really one thing I think I'll, I'll just add there, I, I think Go what's ahead. interesting about in terms of the real world impact, um, years ago, before I was even at NVIDIA, I worked at a utility company, right. And so I was a part of bringing, bringing um, renewable energy to the masses. And we were going to give customers an option to choose do you want to buy renewable or do you want to buy, you know, your standard, you know, coal or, or fossil fuel um, energy? And it wasn't just about the supply and the output, but it was truly about cost, right? And so to the extent that, that these are going to help make this more attractive, that's what's going to drive adoption. It's not just about creating these technologies and assuming everyone would be willing to pay a higher price for for mm-hmm. renewable energy. So it's really about how can we drive down the cost to make them more cost competitive and then mm-hmm. increase adoption, right? Because right now we don't have a problem where it's you know we have we we can't produce enough when energy It's really can you produce enough at the right cost
1: yeah mm-hmm. and technology is moving so quick right now you know like uh the the digital twin technology and then on the cloud and the type of you know computing resources that we have access to and and the type of ai modeling that we can have to supplement the the physics-based modeling and to kind of i guess it's it, it is changing so quickly in in a big organization like Siemens Gamesa or Vestas like the, the the big OEMs it's difficult to react with that and and traditional tools are sticky you know the traditional things we use and and the engineers that have been there for a long Habits. <laughs> time are are really you know a bit bit stuck in in the way we have been and to accelerate and drive through this digital transformation it's really difficult because the user adoption part of it is is so key and so difficult because i'm an engineer too I love my tools, but you know we, we really have to, in order to accelerate this, we really have to do something about inserting new tooling and new methods into engineering workflows. The, the it's not just about developing new technology; it's about the adoption of that technology, and that is a big challenge. I can tell you across any industry, uh, I have experience in aerospace, in, in energy, we see it everywhere.
0: Couldn't agree more. Um... What you were talking about earlier was the unknowns, which for Chuck Yeager was, uh, when they were, before they broke the sound barrier, they were wondering, could material last? Would it fly apart? Would it stay together? Would the plane still function over the sound barrier? But that brings to mind the the issue, look, there are are known knowns, there's known unknowns, Mm -hmm. and there's unknown unknowns, and those are usually the most dangerous ones. You're not Mm -hmm. even thinking about them, but they could totally get you. Now, you're using modeling to predict what will happen. How do you connect that model to the real world and ensure that it's increasingly tied to the real world? Because if your model's off, and you think, oh, we're gonna be 100% fine during a wind of 200 kilometers an hour, no problem whatsoever, keep the turbine going, <laughs> right? You know, um, then you've got a problem. So how do you continue making sure that that model uh, conforms
1: to reality? Right. So I can give an example from, from let's say, uh, first principles physics-based modeling, where let's say we have a CFD model, and you know we have across a wide range of sites we've run it, and then we know what's happening operationally, you know, in the wind farm after it's been built. So we've run it a priori in the design, and then it's been run uh, afterwards. So we can do benchmarking, and we call this like our continuous improvement. So what we're looking at is. Uh, let's say, in this case, if we're talking about quantity of wind, and the potential power output of a wind farm, we have our a priori prediction, we have our wind modeling models, uh, physics based that that got us to an AP prediction. And then uh, we have what's really happening in the field. So we're always benchmarking back and forth. And actively, like in, in CFD, for instance, you can tune constants, for instance. Uh, so so you're you're, you're actively always in a physics-based model, um, you know, turning the knobs that you need to to get to, across a wide range of parks, let's say the most, the least error with what's actually happening in the field. Now the same thing with you know uh, machine learning models. You you you're constantly training; they're constantly improving. Um, so you need this feedback from actual performance in the field, the reality of what's happening, feeding back to your original predictions and tuning back and forth all the time.
2: Yep.
0: so somebody's got to be the guinea pig and somebody's got to actually see <laughs> does it actually work in the real world and eventually yep. some sometimes those break but eventually you get enough data that you're pretty confident you're coming 99.99 and you add nines as you add more data percent sure. of situations and realities and let's turn back to you and maybe we'll end here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty exciting stuff, creating digital twins, using sure. AI, modeling the world to understand what's going to happen with your technology when it's in place out there, when you've actually spent $500 million placing it in the ground or in the North Sea or wherever you've put your turbines. Right. Uh, where's it going next? You talked about 45,000 times faster at predicting sure. extreme weather events. You've talked about you know 10,000 times faster at modeling certain things. But what's the next step?
2: So I think, um, like I said, because it's being applied in a bunch of different domains and disciplines, I think it's going to take a different trajectory depending on the use case. I'll just use climate since we've been sort of, you know, touching on that throughout. Um, I think to your first question around validation, it's always interesting with climate because you have, you know, hundreds of years of actual data of recorded, you know, actual weather data, climate data. So you can literally do a, a post hoc prediction. So you say mm-hmm. take the 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 observed data points 200 years ago, run it through your model and see how it how it predicts, you know, 50 years out, 20 years out, 70 years out, etc. So you can literally start to see and validate your models against historical data, which is a lot of what they do in in the climate space because you have this sort of rich history of data. And so that's on the simulation side. Then the AI side, of course, we're validating versus simulation and observed. So I think when I th- and and that's really key when you talk about climate because when we're describing um, some of these outputs, right? We're saying, okay, what is the climate going to look like 50 years from now? And that has very real implications, right? If you're trying to determine how much carbon should we, you know, limit into our environment, what sorts of you know um, of policies should we put in place in order to avoid some particular outcome? you have to be very confident in that outcome to spend millions and billions of dollars today in order to to, um, drive real behavior. So I would say that's that's really the next step is like as we start to improve some of the accuracy of some of the models and the the resolution as I described before of some of the models, I think that'll start to get us to a very um, sort of defensible position about taking action and doing mitigative steps to address any sort of climate change issues that we're, we're facing. So I think what's next is like I said, the, the, there's still room to grow on these models. Like they're a lot faster, but they can get better. And so I think the iterative process that Greg was defining, was describing earlier, you know, we'll continue doing that. And as the, they become you know, fairly well understood and, and adopted, because I mean, no matter how good it is, unless it's used and embraced by the scientific community, you know, you're not gonna get any real traction. So as that happens, we think we can really start to drive real policy, real decision-making, real mitigation strategies and adaptation strategies that can hopefully you know, overcome some of the issues that we think we may be facing.
0: Well, I hope that's certainly the case, um, because we certainly had a lot of people that are saying, like, my gut trumps your data. (laughs) (laughs) Or my convenience uh, trumps your um, freedom to breathe in 20 years or something like that. (laughs) But, hey, we'll see how those things go. Greg, I want to thank you. Dion, I want to thank you. This has been super interesting. Thank you for your time. Absolutely.